0: Every time a missile misses its target, a train derails, or a faulty airbag fails to save a life, we wonder whether these failures, which can sometimes reach catastrophic proportions, are caused by a counterfeit part that may have infiltrated the supply chain. Welcome to People to People, working together for your safety with host Stan Salat, Jr. Stan has the answers to your questions on protecting yourself and the safety of your loved ones, including your pets. Don't miss out. Now, here is Stan Salat.
1: Hello and welcome to People to People, working together for your safety. I'm your host, Stan Salat, Jr. Our show today, a formula for innovation, young professionals at the USNC IEC. The need to engage new and emerging professionals in standardization and conformity assessment and maintain their long-term involvement has been been clearly identified at the U.S. and international level. I'm pleased to have two of the young professionals that were chosen to p- represent the United States National Committee, the known as the USNC, at national and international levels. My young professional guest, Ethan Burry, bear Beery. Beery. I knew I'd mess that up when I tried to say it. (laughs) Sorry about that, Ethan. And Jonathan Colby. I got that one right, right, Jonathan? Okay, Jonathan will be right back. We'll we'll join my regular guest, uh, Mr. Frank Chano, senior partner, Goldberg Sagala, and I to discuss the reasons they sought nomination, what they learned, and how this will help them in their careers. Frank, thank will also, you again, Stan. you're quite welcome, Frank, and it's a pleasure to have you. Thank Frank's, Frank's going to help us understand how what Ethan and Jonathan learned as young professionals can help them protect their companies from litigation throughout their careers. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors that make the show pros- possible: Business and Quality Process Management LLC, BQ. Yeah. provides business process and quality management consulting, training, and software tools. Please take a minute to check them out at their website, bqpm.com. And Secure Components, LLC, independent distributor specializing in obsolete and hard-to-find components. Secure Components is the first company in the world to achieve international certification for their counterfeit detection and mitigation process controls. Their IECQ CAP certification was achieved in accordance with the SAE AS 6081 uh, Counterfeit Detection Mitigation Standard. You can find them at securecomponents.com. i also like to recognize uh, my regular guest, Mr. Frank Chano, again, senior partner at Gold, Goldberg Zagala, and when you need legal assistance, by all means, goldbergsagala.com or uh, find them by phone number and just give them a call. Thank you, Stan. Uh, And Frank, I'm going to let you, uh, one of the things we have to do at the beginning of these shows is make sure that we cover our legal aspects and I'm going to let Frank do that at this time.
2: I just want to remind the audience, Stanley, that the comments I give here are general legal issues and concepts. Uh, anything i say is not legal advice the law of every state is different and uh you know people need to see a lawyer in their jurisdiction or contact me directly for specific legal advice for their particular
1: circumstances okay thank you frank and uh, ethan and jonathan you got that right understood <laughs> got it none of what we're talking about today represents legal advice for either one of you now <laughs> Okay, let me let me take just a minute to uh, give you a little bit of a, a feeling for uh, Ethan. Ethan is an LED engineering leader at Lutron Electronics. While his cre- while his early career was spent developing dimming systems, where were you when I needed you, Ethan? <laughs> for large scale commercial projects, the last five years have been spent focusing on LED technology, especially in the areas of testing and improving dimming uh, compatibility. In this role, he works uh, with colleagues from all levels of in the industry, from chipset vendors to lamp and fixture manufacturers in order to improve compatibility between dimmers and LED light sources. Um, my My second guest, if you will, is Jonathan Colby, and I don't really put these in a first or second category here, but... My second guest is Jonathan, uh, Colby, Jonathan, Jonathan is a hydrodynamic engineer. I like dynamic engineer, but I guess you're in hydro, huh? Jonathan?
3: Indeed. Indeed. Marine kinetic hydro. That's it.
1: Okay. Uh, working in the title, title energy device developer based in New York city, um, That's actually with uh, Verdant Power in New York City. He has been with the company since 2006 after completing his master's in aerospace engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, Let me start by welcoming uh, Ethan to the show. Thank you very
4: much, Stan. I look forward to a great conversation today.
1: And we look forward to chatting with you. And Jonathan, welcome as well.
4: Thank you very much Dan it's a pleasure to be
3: here today and I look forward to it.
1: And uh, not I forget uh, Frank Chano Frank is a senior partner at Goldberg Zagala New York office and the leader of the um, and the leader of the firm's risk and litigation avoidance strategies and food and beverage practice groups Hi Hi Frank
2: as always Stan it's my pleasure to be a guest on your show.
1: And what what the audience knows now is that I I ask you back every week so that I can stay out of legal trouble, right? <laughs> that's
2: that's right. <laughs> and the the uh, the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a a lot of money in legal fees.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, let's let's jump in here and uh, talk a bit about what what I'm really looking at here is what Ethan and Jonathan have actually experienced in their process of becoming a young professional, and I guess that deserves a bit of explanation all by itself. So, um, let's see, Ethan, since you're the youngest of the young professionals, in the sense that you're the newest of the young professionals, why don't we uh, ask you to give us a little bit of an overview of what is a young professional in the USNC?
4: Sure. Well, the Young Professionals program was started actually within the... uh, office of the IEC, so the international body, and then kind of trickled down to the individual national committees, such as the U.S. National Committee. The point of the program is to introduce more young professionals, obviously, into the world of standardization, um, which has been traditionally uh, very, a lot, lot older people in it, so when people retire, there's not always a lot of backfill to replace that level of experience and knowledge in there. So the Young Professionals Program has been around for the last several years to really as, as a recruiting tool and as a promotional tool and is really to get younger professionals excited about joining standardization.
1: And uh, Jonathan, what what got you into it? You, you were, let's see, you were 2011, I believe?
3: Yeah, that's correct, Stanley. Um, I myself... Uh, was introduced to the standardization world through uh, the marine energy sector. Uh, as marine energy grows as a form of renewable energy, um, we, we found the need to standardize uh, some of the best practices that were uh, going on. Um, and so as my work with the IEC developed through technical committee 114, uh, yes. I started to learn about standards and learn about conformity assessment uh, and once the IEC began its program uh, for young professionals, uh, I was approached by the head of my national uh, technical advisory group uh, if I'd be interested in being nominated. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a very positive experience for me since that since that first
1: workshop. So am I correct in saying that you were nominated? That means you, you put your hand up and you were just automatically accepted or did you have to do something to get there?
3: Nope. There's definitely a nomination process, um, and it includes uh, an application uh, with some writing, and then it also includes, you know, as possible, some letters of recommendation and letters of support from both people within your company and potentially people in the standards world uh, that you may have interacted with.
1: Okay, and like I,
2: I, ten- say, I I think it's I think it's great that these guys are getting into the standards world because. The standards provide a very important, you know, very important guidelines and milestones for companies to know what kind of products they're obliged to put out in the market. And, and I've seen that there's often a, a lack of younger involvement in it. And these two gentlemen set a model for a great resource for companies so they're fully informed on their duties and responsibilities as set by various standards promulgating agencies to really keep products safe and make people know what they're buying. So I applaud both of their
1: efforts. Uh, I certainly agree with that. And as Jonathan's pointed out, and I'm sure Ethan has seen, uh, when we talk about gray hairs and standards bodies, uh, they're the the majority, not the minority.
2: Yeah.
4: Definitely agreed.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: And and I agree with that too, Stan. I mean, in today's world, you know, the the gray hairs like us – you know, they, they don't realize the new trends, the new model, the new fashion, the new way to use things and it takes the younger people to really understand what's really going on in the market to make sure that the standards are keeping up with how products are really used.
1: Very true. Ethan, what what made you decide to, to apply for young professionals? Um,
4: well, like you said in the introduction, I started my career as kind of a typical design engineer where I was the user of end standards where I had to read the standards, understand them, and figure out how to apply those to products that I was designing to ultimately sell into the marketplace. Um, My company plays a great value on having the proper standards applied to products, even when in some cases they're optional, in some cases they're mandatory, in some cases they're optional. We say if there's a standard that should apply to our product, we want it to meet it. So it it was sometimes burdensome to understand really how these came about. So as I matured in my career, I got the opportunity to become involved in the development of some new standards. And as I uh, got involved in this process, I would become more knowledgeable on it. And I found it was quite interesting. It's this combination between technical skills and personal skills and knowing the market and knowing what's possible and everything. So it was very interesting. So that kind of gave me exposure into the world of standardization and kind of got me attention from ultimately the people that nominated me for the Young Professionals program.
1: Okay. Okay and Jonathan any any thoughts or additions or
3: no I think that's I think that's a common experience um, the the young professionals program has generally looked to attract young professionals with some exposure to standards and conformity assessment before the program begins and so i yeah it, it, as similar very similar to myself um, a few years of experience in the development of standardization. Uh, and then, sort of, people above myself, and it sounds like above Ethan, nominated him and nominated myself for the program, seeing that we were sort of on that track already and wanting to really expand our knowledge of standards and conformity assessment.
1: There's, there's another piece of this. Uh, both of you are working in industries that are d- rely heavily on standards, and I think, Ethan, you have, you're actually have or have been involved uh, to some degree with the Underwriters Laboratory and the um, safety regulations that are in there?
4: That's correct, yes. Um, Many of our products are line voltage products, and and we sell many of them in the the U.S., and um, while UL per se, Underwriters Laboratories per se, is not a requirement in the National Electric Code. It does require products that or powered from line voltage, generally speaking, to have some sort of nationally recognized test lab or NRTL, NERDL, uh, to be put on the product to ensure that it's safe when it's actually installed.
1: Yeah, your use of the acronym NERDL always always tickles my fancy because <laughs> when I get upset with UL, that's what I call them. <laughs> and while they appreciate it in a standards meeting, they don't appreciate it coming from me. <laughs> Um both, both of you, Jonathan and Ethan, uh, as I understand, both of you are chosen to actually lead the young professionals. And when we say young professionals, we're talking about a global situation, if, meaning there's people from multiple countries. It's not just the U.S.?
4: That's correct. Um, we So the, the Young Professionals meet at the annual IEC meeting this past fall. It was in New Delhi, India, uh, which is where I was representing the U.S. And the group, it's about 50 or so uh, of nominees from around the world, many, many different countries. Uh, then at the end of the session, select a, you know, they self-select a leader from the group to kind of represent the interests of the group going forward for the next calendar year. And I was selected for this year, and Jonathan was selected for his year as well. So it, it was quite the honor to be nominated for the program originally and then selected as a leader of that program for a year. Congratulations to both of you.
1: And, and Jonathan, you. you did the same thing in uh, 2011.
3: Yep, that's correct. The 2011 workshop was held in conjunction with the general meeting uh, in Melbourne, Australia. And I should point out that the 2014 Young Professionals workshop will be in uh, early November in Tokyo in conjunction with the IEC general meeting.
1: And Frank, tell us you know, from, from the standpoint of law, what value do standards provide companies or, or not provide companies?
2: I think we're coming up on a break, Stan, and I'll I'll start it now, but um, standards are very important to companies because they establish a minimum level of acceptable behavior. It gives a company some benchmarks to shoot for while designing a product to ensure that, that at least minimum standards or requirements are met before products are put on the market. There's an important distinction to be made between voluntary standards and mandatory standards. I guess we can talk about those after the break. But like I said, standards just give a, a, a way to be sure that you're conforming t- to what society requires.
1: Okay. And Jonathan and Ethan both, um, obviously these are things that you're learning or have learned between industry and, and the young professional group. Or does that actually ever get brought up?
4: Um, I, I could say from a personal standpoint, it comes up all the time in, in meetings within my company when we're talking about products and safety and say, okay, you've know, you got to have this mark on it because it means you've done the minimum. Of course, there's more you can do. But that's always an undercurrent whenever you're discussing standards. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I also would point out that, that for emerging industries,
3: uh, especially in the marine sector, that the... Reduction of perceived risk by meeting these standards uh, is very important in both the investor and insurance communities.
1: Yes. Well, it also ties directly into uh, people to people working together for your safety because that's what it's really all about. And we need to take a uh, short break here, let the uh, station identify itself and our sponsors, and we'll be back with you in just a minute. Don't go away.
5: Secure Components is your international certified supplier of obsolete and hard-to-find products. Specializing in counterfeit mitigation, Secure Components is a qualified supplier for the Department of Defense, Aerospace, Military, and Avionics Industries. If you're a business in need of hard-to-find or obsolete components, please contact us by visiting our website, securecomponents.com, or call us at 484-222-5195. Again, 484-222-5195. $5195. 5195
0: Did you know that hazardous substances and counterfeit material can be in everything we buy? From new clothing, cars, toys, power cords, and charging units, to your garden hose and the drywall in your home. Did you know that many of these toxins or counterfeits have been found to cause infertility, birth defects, autism, obesity, and diabetes, which can be passed down from parents to children? It's nearly impossible to know the ingredients in these products, yet, Stan Salat Jr., author and creator of the not for profit hsf mark alliance and counterfeit avoidance mark alliance believes that consumers have the right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in the products we buy are you a retailer a manufacturer a manager and a person who cares about the safety of the products you sell and buy protect your assets your job and your family now tell stan that you want his help contact bqpm today Visit our website at www.bqpm.com or call toll-free 877-415-0191, bqpm.com. Together, we are working for your safety. This is People to People, Working for Your Safety. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to stan.salat at ecccorp.org. Again, that's stan.salot. S-A-L-O-T, at ecccorp.org. Now, back to People to People.
1: Welcome back to People to People, working together for your safety. I'm your host, Stan Salat, Jr., Our show today, A Formula for Innovation, Young Professionals at the USNC IEC. That's the International Electrotechnical Commission. The need to engage new and emerging professionals in standardization and conformity assessment. That's what this is all about. Young professionals are necessary if we're going to continue to promote the development of standards and conformity assessment. And, uh, keeping people interested in this can be difficult at times for sure. Uh, let me welcome back Ethan, Jonathan, and Frank.
4: Thank you. Hi, Stan.
1: We're going to pick up where we left off. And I think Frank was, uh, talking about some of the, the legal ramifications or the value, if you will, of, uh, standards and how they protect us, uh, or not us, but how they protect companies, um, uh, Frank?
2: Yeah, as I was saying before, Stan, you know, there, there are really, you know, standards give companies guideposts for how to design a particular product. But in the U.S. court system, and again, and I'm speaking in general terms now, a standard sets a minimum level of acceptable behavior. So just because a company meets and or exceeds the requirements of a particular standard, that does not mean a jury could not consider the product defective. To get rid of some negatives in there, just because you meet the standards, a product could still be considered defective because a jury could con- could consider that a non-defective product has an even higher level than set by the standards. That makes it very tricky for US manufacturers To really know what they have to do to design a product, it it creates somewhat of a moving target for manufacturers because you can't really be positive of what you have to do to avoid liability. This is in contrast to European standards where, in general, again, I'm speaking in general terms, if you meet the requirements of a standard in Europe, the product will not be considered defective because Europeans place a much greater weight or significance to the standards. It, it's kind of a, a difference in philosophy, whereas in, the United, in Europe, it's all prospective, where you anticipate the needs and you meet the standard for those needs. In the United States, it's always reactive, where after something happens, you go back and see what a company did and didn't do to evaluate the safety of a product.
1: That's, that's quite interesting because it takes me back to uh, my early career where we were designing at that time uh, what would be considered state-of-the-art switching power supplies. And not going through the, uh, the whole thing, we did have it tested according to standards in the U.S. as well as Europe and as well as Asia, uh, the power supply itself had this minor problem of catching on fire. Yeah, um, minor it, problem. Minor problem. It, it was designed to spec The folks in the European Union just kind of said, okay, we got a quality problem. The bank in New York that, that had $10 million worth of these things was... Um, talking to Frank or somebody like Frank, uh, it was all about the court system and the folks in Japan that experienced some of the same issues. Similar to the uh, European Union, they, they kind of said, okay, we've got a quality problem. What are you going to do to fix it? Um, shifting a yep. shifting gear here, Jonathan, Ethan, somebody was about to say something.
4: Well, I was just going to say, you know, we're using the word standards very kind of loosely here, and there are really two major categories of standards. You know, there's safety standards, which, right. as we were mentioning about UL before, those are very safety-oriented standards, and, you know, it's, you know, to try try to prevent things like, you know, power supplies catching on fire, as an example. Then there are performance-oriented standards, and, and the European standards that are out there based off of IEC standards are almost always much more performance oriented. I mean, of course, they contain safety aspects, but they often contain much more performance oriented criteria than U.S. standards do, or those that are outside of the IEC, such as UL or others.
1: Okay. And and these also, I guess I'm going to step back one more time, and one of the things I learned about the IEC uh many years ago now but the IEC itself was created in 1906 and as I recall and maybe one of you Jonathan or Ethan can correct me if I'm wrong but it was essentially created because people were being electrocuted by lampposts in the UK that were improperly grounded because there was essentially no standards at that time Right. Have have you heard that one Heard about I've, never,
3: that? I've never heard the part about electrocutions at, with light posts in, in the UK, Never, not, not that part. I know that what, you know, what we learned through the Young Professionals program is just that it was formed as electricity was gaining uh, traction around the world, that some of the leading scientists and engineers around the new electricity idea got together and agreed upon the need for some standard terminology uh, in the electricity field.
1: Yeah, we've probably lost too many of our gray hairs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you dig into it, you'll find Lord Kelvin is uh, credited with bringing this to light. And it yep. was because lampposts were not grounded. And uh, th- there was folks in the UK that found that to be an, an unacceptable reality if you go lean on the lamppost and find yourself warmer than you wanted it to be. <laughs> so.
4: Well, it's interesting that it just goes to show that standards come about in many cases as a reaction to market needs and and deficiencies in the marketplace.
1: Yes, they do. And in your experiences as young professionals, now that you've gotten a taste of what happens at the international level, how easy is it to to pull these things together or, or how difficult is it?
4: Uh, it's not easy at all, I would say. And and one of the challenges that I think the IEC faces is um, w- what we discussed is the markets and move and companies move and technology move very quickly. And to keep standards ahead of that, to anticipate what the needs are going to be and to be able to react with standards that meet the needs of the marketplace when they're needed is very, very important to do. And it's it's a challenge when you are getting opinions from around, literally around the world, into a document. It's it's a challenge. How how
2: do you how do you deal with the situations where you have different standards? You know, European, American, Asian that are that are mutually exclusive. You know, where one standard requires something to be black, the other one requires it to be white. What what do you do in those circumstances?
3: Maybe I'll, I'll have a, a say a, a thing about the marine energy sector, my own, my own industry. Um, luckily, there, that problem doesn't exist uh, because there were no standards in advance of the work that we're doing with the IEC right now. Um, and so as Ethan mentioned, often the market drives the need for standards. Um, and in our case, it was the absence of standards in the market that was the issue. Uh, and that companies and technology developers couldn't, easily compare technologies uh, against anything and so the need for a standard against which technologies and performance could be assessed became really important for the industry especially from an insurance and investment perspective so i, w- I would say that you know sometimes standards can help fuel a market where maybe it didn't exist before
2: right
1: and then and then you have, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan, you are also dealing with the insurance companies, if I recall correctly?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I, you know, for me, um, while I was very familiar with standards before young professionals, uh, one of the things that the program gave me a very interesting exposure to was this conformity assessment and certification side. Um, and... As you talk to insurers and investors, um, the third-party verification of new and emerging technologies is critical for both the investment and insurance of projects You know, in regards to renewable energy. And so, yes, both the insurance and the investment community uh, are very interested in the certification of new technologies. Uh, and so my activities have increased significantly with conformity assessment since I began participating in the Young Professionals program.
1: And Frank, I guess when we talk about insurance, this brings us back to the legal aspects because insurance companies obviously get involved when there's a problem uh, more than any time, any other time. Right. Um, Any experience with with that related to where standards either helped or hurt?
2: Uh, There's a lot of parts to that question, Stan. I mean, if a company is going to purchase insurance from a company, they're going to want to demonstrate the conformity of their product to the applicable standards. So the the insurance company can make an assessment of the safety or dangers presented by the product because they have to... uh, you know, set your your insurance rates by the risk. So that, that's one way insurance companies, I suspect, look at it. And another way is, you know, when, when the litigations start, you know, if an insurance, well, let me back up a second. If an insurance company pays out on a claim, you know, they're going to want to try and recover, you know, from a, a culpable party for a loss. You know, for example, if a house burns down because a, um, because a switch starts a fire, The insurance company is going to try and find out how and why that fire started, and when they find out it's a switch, the first thing they're going to do is determine whether or not that design and manufacture meets the relevant standards. If it doesn't, the insurance company will have a very easy time recovering the money it paid.
1: Right. And I guess, Ethan, when we talk about uh, LED technology, is something that I'm Near and it was thing that's near and dear to my heart as I try and change all my light bulbs out again. Um,
4: Yeah, you and many others. Yes, (laughs) Yes. Uh,
1: I've been I've been on the forefront of that. I started doing it the minute I got the first one out of out of Asia where they were building them. The whole dimmable. When we talk about dimming LEDs, you're talking about some uh, uh, some technology that hasn't existed for very long.
4: That yes, that's exactly right, Um, and uh, this is something I I speak about pretty often. It's a very frequent question that we get asked. You know, people. Light dimmers have been out as we know them today for over 50 years. So, LED light sources, as we know them today, have been out for roughly five. Right. So you. People often come to us and say, well, what do you mean the dimmer I've had installed for the past eight years doesn't work properly on my new brand new LED bulb? We say, well, it it wasn't a glimmer in an engineer's eye by that point.
1: So um,
4: one of the messages that we give people is, you know, new dimmers that are out today have now been tested against new standards to work with new LED bulbs. So you know they're safe and you know they're reliable. When people say, but you know, I'm screwing this LED lamp into my dimmer that I've had in for a while, and it seems to work, and we say, Yes, it seems to. We haven't tested it, UL hasn't tested it, it's not gone under not undergone that any level of safety testing as a system. So we can't guarantee that it's going to work together for a week, a month, a year, and if or when it fails, how will it fail? So we always recommend people to uh Make sure you're using new dimmers for new lamps for that reason.
2: What, what what will fail, Ethan? Will the LED fail, the dimmer switch fail, the wires will fail, or any combination of the above?
4: Um, it's it's It can vary. It's not usually the wires that fail, but, but the electrical characteristics, kind of the electrical signatures that LED lamps and CFL lamps create is very different than what incandescent lamps create. So often that creates stresses in the dimmer beyond what it was designed for. So it can often mean the dimmer fails, and it can sometimes also mean the LED lamp fails. So people have had bad experiences with CFL lamps for that reason as well when the early ones came out, that they failed prematurely.
2: When you say fail, you mean just stop working or they could start a fire?
4: Uh, Well, generally (laughs) it's just stop working. Um, But because it hasn't been tested, you can't rule out the possibility of a more dramatic failure.
2: I'm, I'm glad we're having this phone this radio show today because <laughs> okay. my wife just upgraded a bunch of our lights, and I have to go check now what dimmers are attached to what lights.
4: Yeah, and, and really down to what I said before, it's the National Electric Code says that you should be using a control, a dimmer rated for the load that's attached to it. That's just what the code says.
1: That's what the code says, and uh, let, me, let me share with all of you uh, – I started off not realizing that they made LED lamps that were designed for dimming and LED lamps that were not designed for dimming. And I'm one of those few that um, didn't pay, even though I'm an engineer now, mind you, that I should have known. But I screwed it in, and I watched it overheat. Fortunately, there was nothing that was going to cause a fire at that time, but that's a reality. Um,
4: In, indeed, indeed. And it's it's a very uh, interesting uh, educational challenge for consumers. You said you, you're an engineer, most people aren't. So even getting that message out is a challenge for us.
1: I can imagine it would be. Um, as we look at all this, uh, we're, we we look at the conformity assessment, we look at standards, we know that they're developed nationally and internationally, and this has been a, a major bone of contention, I guess, one could say, with the differences between countries. One of them that comes to mind uh, through the work that I've done at the USNC is uh, a technical committee number 23 that – I believe it's 23 – that deals with plugs, plugs and sockets. Um, This one is the round plugs of the European Union or the grounding first versus the U.S. that's either a two or three prong plug. Um, And these are things that I suspect you're, not the plugs themselves, but the things, the differences between national and international standards is part of what you're learning in the Young Professionals.
4: Yes, it certainly is, and often it's how do you bridge those gaps that are, you know, that are technical and cultural? Uh, how do you make sure everyone's voice is heard? And how do you come up with a solution that may not satisfy all the needs, but is what they call a, through a, con, a consensus-based process where everyone has a voice that's heard and there's no sustained opposition to a particular solution? So yes, that that's a key part of what we're learning as young professionals.
1: Okay, we, we need to take a uh, short break again for radio identification. When we come back, and I'll let you uh, you and Jonathan think about this. but when I started in this, a typical standard took between five and maybe ten years to get consensus, as you just mentioned. So uh, I'd like to like to have your thoughts on that, that lengthy process, and Frank, how, uh, how the courts thought about that as well and what's happening today. Okay. We'll we'll be right back. Uh, stay with us. This is Stan Salat, your host of People to People, working together for your safety.
0: Did you know that hazardous substances and counterfeit material can be in everything we buy from new clothing, cars, toys, power cords and charging units to your garden hose and the drywall in your home? Did you know that many of these toxins or counterfeits have been found to cause infertility, birth defects, autism, obesity and diabetes which can be passed down from parents to children? It's nearly impossible to know the ingredients in these products, yet Stan Salat Jr., author and creator of the not-for-profit HSF Mark Alliance and Counterfeit Avoidance Mark Alliance, believes that consumers have the right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in the products we buy. Are you a retailer, a manufacturer, a manager, and a person who cares about the safety of the products you sell and buy? Protect your assets, your job, and your family now. Tell Stan that you want his help contact bqpm today visit our website at www.bqpm.com or call toll free 877-415-0191 bqpm.com
5: together we are working for your safety Secure Components is your international certified supplier of obsolete and hard-to-find products. Specializing in counterfeit mitigation, Secure Components is a qualified supplier for the Department of Defense, Aerospace, Military, and Avionics Industries. If you're a business in need of hard-to-find or obsolete components, please contact us by visiting our website, securecomponents.com, or call us at 484-222-5195. Again, 484-222-5195. 195 Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time, the number
0: 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com This is people to people working for your safety. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to stan.salot at ecccorp.org. Again, that's stan.salot, S A L O T, at eccorp.org. Now, back to People to People.
1: Welcome back to People to People, working together for your safety. I'm your host, Dan Salat, Jr. Our show today, A Formula for Innovation, Young Professionals at the USNC IEC. We're going to jump right back into this. Uh, we're, we're well through our show today, and I want to make sure we touch on a couple of things before we get away. Um, I was uh, talking just before the break about the, uh, the time that it takes to get a standard out, And I'd like to ask uh, both uh, Ethan and Jonathan to comment on that. My experience starting out in this world of standards, which has been a a fair number of years ago, it was common that we used uh, faxes and uh, snail mail, as it's now called. And you didn't even think about having a meeting with less than six months between uh, emails, not emails, snail mails, asking for the meeting. Uh, Jonathan, Ethan, whichever one of you'd like to go first. Uh, what What does that mean to you today? What, what's happening in today's world for for this regarding time?
3: Yeah, thanks, Stan. I think I'll start here. Um, as you point out, uh, the traditional cycle for standards uh, can easily be five years or longer, um, and then they have. Relatively significant maintenance periods, Um, and I think for well-established industries and technology, this is important because uh, the manufacturing facilities need time, uh, supply chains need time, and if the standard were changing too rapidly, you could run into issues um, with that. But on the, for emerging technology and for new and sort of innovative industries and technologies, often that period is far too long uh, for the development of a standard. And so, for the marine energy sector, uh, as an example, we've approached the problem by adopting technical specifications which generally only take about two to three years and generally have maintenance intervals less than five years. Um, and so for I would say for new and emerging technologies and industries, uh, there are some alternative solutions out there to get formalized best practices and formalized performance standards in place through a process more like a technical specification or technical report.
1: And, and with that, I assume that the idea of using faxes and... Uh uh, other types of slow communication is not the uh, preferred method anymore.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. We are not <laughs> using fax machines anymore. Um, our focus is definitely on you know similar platforms as this, um, internet-based meetings, uh, webinars, you know, teleconferencing, um, and yeah, much much more regular and sort of rapid dialogue in the process.
1: So Morse code and, uh, uh, and teletype are not uh, the the primary tools.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember I was involved at the ASTM's development of of certain standards back in the 90s. Stan, and it was more like you described. You know, flying in meetings on three six months notice, and uh, you know things moving very very slowly. There was there was no. Uh, no go-to meeting available back then.
1: All right. Ethan, you're, you're working in uh, an emerging technology as well, and I can imagine if it's only about five years old, uh, are you working actually with standards today? Or are you working with specifications? It's, it's interesting
4: that you ask that. I mean, Jonathan mentioned he's, he's at really the cutting edge of a new technology that didn't exist at all years ago. Um, LED lighting, on the other hand, is really, you know, you could look at it as a derivation of existing lighting. So you mentioned the the technical committee on plugs and sockets, um, and and that's involved in this transition because that's actually where dimmers fall under as well. Um, So there are lots of standards that already existed that when you try to apply to new technologies, some fit well and some don't fit well. So then it comes down to trying to modify the existing standards or expand them to allow for these new technologies um so it's it's a different challenge because you've got a lot of long-term vested interests, and you have to work with standards that already exist at the same time recognizing you have to make changes quickly because the industry is moving quickly so it's interesting that way
1: and, Frank, I have a question for you. Um, we're talking about standards, and obviously we have standards, we have specifications. Some of these are voluntary, some of them are required. How does, how does that fit into the, the area of uh, company um, regulations, if you will, or what they need to do?
2: Yeah, that's interesting, Stan, because you know, there are really two types of standards out there. There are, those, there are voluntary standards, you know, in large part those produced by the American Society of Testing Materials and the American National Standards Institute. A lot of those are voluntary standards, which means a manufacturer is not obliged to comply with those standards before they sell their products in the United States. They are, you know, somewhat like suggestions on what a manufacturer should do in order to enter the market. In contrast, you have mandatory standards that are issued by agencies like the, like the, Depart- like the Federal, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards or standards issued by the Consumer Product Safety Commissions in which before a manufacturer is even permitted to sell his products that are covered by those standards, he must demonstrate compl- it must demonstrate compliance with those standards or else he can't sell them. Now, that's from the business perspective. However, in, 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 the, in my world, in the courtroom, all standards really are mandatory because if a manufacturer comes to market with a product that does not meet the voluntary standards, you know, even though he's, it's allowed to, that product could be considered defective if it, it causes an accident. So in effect, even the voluntary standards really are mandatory. If you want to avoid litigation and liability,
1: well, that, that kind of explains clearly why some of the companies I've worked for throughout my career have uh, voluntarily paid uh, settlements. We won't yeah. get, we won't get into that though.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that that's what happens, Stan. You know, if 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 you're going to come to market with a product that doesn't meet the voluntary standards. You better have a very good explanation as to why that particular standard wasn't necessary to be complied with, why it didn't cause or contribute to an accident, or why your product was safe despite that non compliance. All right. And it's it's an uphill battle.
1: And it probably will be forever. Um, Jonathan and Ethan, part of what we're we're talking about today is in fact the young professionals and the process you went through for our audience what would what would you advise um, folks who might be interested in doing this what's your advice to those folks or the managers of those folks that feel they have somebody that would benefit from the young professional program
4: well maybe uh, I'll take this one the I think it's really being proactive um, one a lot of our conversation that we had with the other young professionals says no one goes to school to specialize in standards in fact it's in, in my educational background it really wasn't even mentioned so many companies have standardization departments that are in many cases yearning for young participation in them so raising your profile asking to, asking questions getting involved is really the key to getting started um, and applying or reading about the application process for young professionals is a great way to get started. And finding the key contacts within your company to learn about standardization is a is a great start as well.
1: Okay, Jonathan.
3: Yeah, I would add that um, you know, for young professionals who are interested in standards and standardization. Um, in addition to what you know, Ethan suggested within your company, um, I think looking at information regarding the IEC Young Professionals program is a great place to start. Um, the nominations for the 2014 program are gonna be starting this week. Um, and so we would encourage anybody who's interested to take a look uh, at the material that's out there, both through the IEC website and through the U.S. National Committee. Um, and then take seriously the idea of, of, of applying Uh, for the Young Professionals Program and and getting involved at the U.S. National Committee level uh, outside of their work you know with their company.
1: Okay and to make life a little bit easier for folks if anybody is interested in getting more information on Young Professionals uh, you can actually go to my website uh, www.stansalot.com and at the lower left hand corner you'll find a link to the uh, USNC, which is actually the ANSI USNC, uh, I believe that's ANSI.org/slash-USNC. So we are coming up on the uh, towards the end of the show here, and I wanted to take uh, maybe a, a thirty seconds and uh, let each of my guests have a few last words before before I uh, go through a few things I need to go through. Uh, Start with Ethan. You're the youngest, Ethan, you you get to start.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Stan. Well, First of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak about uh, the Young Professionals Program and the opportunities that exist in the Young Professionals program for anyone interested in, in participating, and um, I encourage any of the listeners out there now to go to the website that Stan mentioned, learn more about the program, and if you're interested, apply. I mean, it, it's, it's a great opportunity uh, to learn and, and to be on the international stage and learn really more about the process behind making standards and, and how they come about. It's, it's great, and I, I am privileged to have that experience.
1: Okay, thank you, Ethan. Jonathan?
4: Yep. Thank you very much, Stan, for this um, opportunity.
3: I agree with Ethan. Uh, I would add that uh, for those managers and higher level uh, folks listening, uh, if you see young professionals working for you that you think would benefit from this, I would encourage you to also um, take a look at the websites and consider nominating some of your staff uh, and some of your engineers or managers, et cetera, to participate.
1: Okay. Thank you. And and Frank, uh, age age comes... Uh, I'll leave it at that, Frank. Age
2: <laughs> privileges are going less. Hey, I, I just want to say, you know, this the standards that are promulgated are really very important for companies. And if you're entering into an industry, it, it really is important to do some research and find out what standards are out there. I've been surprised many times by my clients... That embark in a new endeavor, a new business idea, a new market strategy, and they don't check to see what standards are governing their activities. And it really is very easy to do a quick search, find out what you're required to do, and be sure that you demonstrate compliance with those requirements. You know, in, in today's world of globalization. You also have to be sure that you're checking the standards of different markets and venues to be sure you're complying with all of the different requirements. Like I mentioned earlier, sometimes the standards in Europe could be very different than the requirements in the United States. Be sure, don't, don't assume that just because you're meeting the U.S. standards, you're meeting the European standards as well. Do okay. some research, find out.
1: Okay, Thank you very much, Frank, and I want to thank all of my guests, uh, Ethan, Jonathan, Frank. Uh, As we close the show today, I'll remind you that our business uh, purpose, rather, is bringing people together to share knowledge and create a safe environment for us all. Uh, You can find out more about us at my new website, www.stansalot.com, and by all means, check out our sponsors, Business and Quality Process Management. Secure Components, and my uh, weekly guest, Frank Chano at uh, Goldberg Zagala. We thank you all. I certainly thank my guest, and I look forward to uh, meeting and talking with everybody again next week.
3: Thank you, thank Stan. Thank you very much, Stan. Thank you, Stan.
0: Thank you for listening. Please join host Stan Salat Jr. for next week's edition of People to People, Working for Your Safety. We'll have another show next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a safe, toxic, and counterfeit-free week.